Welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. I'm Garth Oliver, and I'm your host as we take this journey through the biblical story. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be exploring what's often called the fall of man. And as we watch this account play out, we're going to look at the temptation that was presented to the woman. What was wrong with her desire to know good and evil? A lot of times that seems like a confusing thing. What's wrong with knowing good and evil? Isn't that a good thing? We're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at how those same elements of temptation challenge us down through today. And so as we look at this, we need to understand where it is in the larger story. And if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, God has created the earth and all it contains. And in the process, he has been bringing order to it and filling it with life. And then he created man to rule over this creation as his representative and to join him in this process of filling the earth with life and bringing order to it. And so if you want more detail on that, you can go back and listen to episode one, uh, where we talked about that. Then in the next episode, we zoomed in to the details of the creation of this first man. We saw God make abundant provision for his representative. We saw him give this representative significance through the responsibility He got to play a significant part in what God's doing here. And we saw God provide all that uh, his representative needed, this man and woman needed, to experience life in the fullest. That provision included the garden, uh, a special place uh, created specifically for the man to be his dwelling place. And in the middle of the garden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man was responsible to take care of these trees, to protect them and care for them, along with all the trees of the garden and the the garden itself. And no restriction was placed on the tree of life. Uh, Nothing is said about that at this point. But the man was specifically instructed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he were to eat from it, he was warned that in that day he would die. Of all the things that God has told him and the responsibilities he's given him, this is the only one that's recorded with a consequence, and that consequence is death. Now, as he was doing this, God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone. This is the first time that it's not good in the story. And so God formed the woman from the man's substance to be his helper in the work God had given him to do, and she drew her identity from him. Together, they made up one flesh. And we talked about this in episode two. And so as we begin to um, uh, look at today's episode, the focus is going to be on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you remember last time we said that in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man was presented with a choice. Uh, Don't eat from it because in the day that you do, you will surely die. And, And implicit in that is this choice of whether they will obey God or not. And so as we move into chapter 3 and into the story, we find one of the creatures that man was rule over. And it's the serpent. And he's described in verse 1 as he was more crafty than any beast of the field. And, and he comes and he's going to, in this first episode, begin to challenge God's rule and instructions. And the attack is going to come through the woman. He's going to invert the order that God has established here. And so he begins with a question that seems innocuous enough. 
Um, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman replied, oh, no, 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 we can, we can eat from any tree of the garden. It's only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's an issue. And God has said that you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. Now, notice the serpent's craftiness here. In this question, there is this implication. God has placed you in the middle of these trees, and we've already been told in chapter 2 that the trees were pleasing to look at and good for food. And so God's put you in the middle of this food source, and he's presented you, prevented you from eating of any of it. You can't eat any of it. God is just so unreasonable, is the implication, without saying so. And the woman's response is, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not what, what the, the reality. We can eat from those trees. The only tree that we can't eat from or even touch is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so in response to the serpent's craftiness in saying that God is unreasonable without really saying that God's unreasonable, uh, the woman overstates it. Uh, God's prohibition. Now, I don't know exactly what uh, the serpent did with that, but I think it's significant enough that Moses included it in the account, and the ser- serpent took advantage of that. And so the serpent comes back for round two, and he continues his attack on God's goodness, which is that's really what he's doing here, is attacking the goodness of God. And he flat out denies, you will not die. God's, God's telling you wrong. He's lying to you. God's not worried about you. God knows that in the day that you eat, two things are going to happen that are related. One, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we need to pause and consider these two phrases to to understand what the temptation was. What was the essence of the temptation? And what was it that made it wrong? And so we start with this idea that her eyes were opened. And if we're tracking the story, I remember I said back in chapter one, we need to remember very back in in day one, when God is creating light and speaking it into existence, and then he separates it from darkness. And after he'd completed that work, God saw that it was good. And so God is presented as looking at it and evaluating it and declaring it good. And now what Satan is telling the woman is that just like God looked at that, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you can look and see that things are good for yourself. And in that, you will become like God. You will no longer be dependent on God to tell you what is good and what is evil, you can assume that role for yourself. You can decide for yourself what is good and what is not. And so this assumes that there is an independent standard of good apart from God, and that we can decide that, or that at this point, that the woman can decide that for herself. And so she no longer needs to be dependent on God. She can move up to equal status With God. And in all of this, underlying this is the reality that the thing that 
is God's exclusive domain, one of the things at the heart of this um, is the right to declare what is good and what is evil. That is exclusively God's domain. And so the temptation is for the woman to move into what is properly only God's. And so in this temptation, the woman is presented with a choice. She can believe God, who we presume through Adam. God was, had spoken to Adam, and so we presume that this, the woman gets this from Adam because she hadn't been created yet uh, when God tells him this in chapter 2. So you can believe God. If you eat from this tree, you will die. Or you can believe the serpent that God is holding out on you and that God's not restricting you because it's in your best interest. He's restricting you because he's protecting his own turf. Because in the day that you eat, you will become like God and God will lose his protected status. And so, of course, the woman looks at the fruit, she considers the arguments, and she ends up presuming to see, even though her eyes have not yet been opened. And so she sees that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food, and it's a delight to the eyes. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 9, we've been told that every tree in the garden is beautiful to look at and a delight to the eyes. And so there's nothing distinctive about those two characteristics related to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not the attraction. The attraction is number three. The third thing that she sees, that it is desirable to make one wise. And so she thinks that eating of the tree will make her wise. This is now later, much later in the story, when we get to the New Testament, Romans 1 describes this as professing to be wise, they became fools. And that's what's going to happen here. And so she looks at this and she decides to eat. She decides that the serpent is telling the truth and that God is holding out on her. And so she eats. And then we find out that she gives to her husband who is with her, who eats also. And so the serpent's leading the woman, the woman's leading the man, and he's following. He's not ruling as God created him and put him here to do. And the result is immediate. The eyes of both of them were opened. Now, the fact that Scripture records this says that something about them changed. There was something in their substance that changed. They now have a capacity that they did not have before, a capacity to see good and evil. And as, as, as I examined this, it seems that what happened is that their conscience was activated. That internal sense of good and evil is now active in their lives, and so now they have a sense of what is good and what is evil independently uh, of God. Um, the problem is, is that it very often doesn't align with God and is therefore unreliable because God is still God. And what they have done is intruded into his domain. And now that their eyes are open, 
the first thing that they see is that they are naked. Now, Satan had implied that having their eyes opened would be a good thing. And in fact, uh, it's worth noting here that Satan, one of the things that Satan had said is that their eyes would be open. And in fact, their eyes are opened. But he had implied that it would be a good thing. And what they learn is not good. Their experience is anything but. And they know that they are naked. And they had been naked all the time. But when God created them, they were naked and unashamed. And now that's no longer the case. Now they are covering up and now they're hiding. They're no longer unashamed in their nakedness. And from this point forward in the story, shame will be associated with nakedness. That will be a problem for man throughout the rest of the story. And so here in the fall, we find that man are presented with a man and, and woman together are presented with the choice to either believe God and follow him or believe the serpent and follow him in pursuing a life independently of God. Now, God had said, in the day that you eat this, you will surely die. Satan had said, no, no, you're not going to die. And what we're going to find is that, obviously, Satan was lying. But we'll look at the consequences of that uh, next time. What we want to do now is think about what we've seen in this passage to this point. And this brings us to the Making Sense of Life portion of the podcast, where we Look at the things that we can take away from this and use them to make sense of our own lives. Now, the first thing I think we need to consider is this notion of a standard of good and evil that is independent of God. Remember, uh, as we began this discussion, we talked about why is it what's wrong with wanting to know good and evil? That that, That seems like a good thing. And what we find as we go through the story is that it's not the temptation to know what God says in good and evil. The temptation is to know good and evil apart from God. And the implication is that there is the standard of good and evil that is universal, that that is independent of God, that there is absolute goodness and absolute evil detached from God, when in fact God is good, and so anything that's good um, comes from Him, and it's good because He says it's good. Um, And I think this is something that we don't deal with very well as we bring the faith forward to our modern life. I'll come back to that in a second. But uh, consider your response as perhaps you're reading through the Old Testament And you come to the book of Deuteronomy and you read all of these regulations that characterized how an ancient Israelite was supposed to live under the covenant uh, with God, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant in Deuteronomy. Uh, For example, we could take the notion that um, um, you shouldn't eat bacon. Bacon was off limits, right? Shrimp was off limits, so bacon-wrapped shrimp was doubly bad. And so we either, we either go, well, there's really nothing really wrong with eating that, or we want to know why. We want to understand what it is that makes it good. We want that to be justified in our mind. And the reality is that it was bad, it was wrong, it was evil, 
because God said it was evil. It's good not to eat that because that's what God defines. Uh, or, or consider where God has commanded the Israelites to obliterate a nation, one of the nations that they were to completely wipe out, man, woman, and child, is the Moabites. And we look at that and go, well, how could God um, uh, want them, command them to kill the Moabite children and babies and women who we think of as innocents. And so from our perspective, that is bad. And so our notion of good and, and evil collides with what God has said is good and evil. And so the net result of this is that as Christians, we find ourselves trying to understand or rationalize or defend God's actions as being good against some kind of external standard when, in fact, God is the standard uh, uh, for good and evil. Apart from God, there is no good, there is no evil. Uh, and that's a, a reality that if we're going to make sense of life, we're going to need to come to grips with. And that brings us to this second piece uh, related to this standard of good and evil in that it is this determination of good and evil that was to make us like God. And so the fact that we still struggle with that recognizes how deeply seated that temptation is within us. See, the determination of good and evil is ultimately the exclusive domain of God. He is the arbiter of good and evil. And so when we begin to try to measure his actions against us, we are encroaching and moving into that area of being like God. Um, as I was talking with a friend about this uh, sometime back, uh, it's been uh, probably a couple of years now, and we were talking about this, and, and it really hit him when I said what the essence of the temptation was is to have an opinion. And, and, and that's really what it is. An opinion is my estimation of what is good and what is not. And we live in a culture that values that above all else. Uh, but the fact is, is that when we put ourselves in this position, um, it is we are encroaching into the realm of God. And I think this is going to come out much later in the story. But it is these competing notions of good and evil that even as Christians that I don't think we deal with sufficiently. We don't address them sufficiently. And uh, so we'll look at that more. But, but uh, this notion that it is this desire to have an opinion, to decide good and evil for ourselves, that was what made us like God. Now, the third area in... Uh, making sense of our lives has to do with temptation. And as we look at the temptation of Eve, there's two major subpoints that we want to consider under this. The first is Satan's suggestion that God is holding out and he brings into question God's goodness and God will, I'm sorry, uh, God's goodness will almost always be a part of the temptation. Uh, now, it may be that God's general plan is good, but it's going to suck to be you, right? That God's willing to throw you under the bu bus for the greater good. Um, and the fact is, is that God is sovereign and he is absolutely good and he's interested in your 
uh, what's best for you as he sees it and understands it, which is, again, now God's defining good, right? And, his, and he really does have our good. He wants us to find life. He wants us to experience all that he has created us for. And so just recognize that when you are doubting God's goodness, that that's a part of temptation. That's not God speaking there. That is the enemy bringing into doubt what God is saying and what you see God saying. Now, the second piece of this temptation issue that we want to recognize is that the woman was tempted in three areas. And these three areas are, are, are laid out later in 1 John as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And that not only was the woman, I think of her as being the first person to go hand-to-hand combat with Satan. Um, and so uh, she's the first one, but she's not the only one because Jesus does the same thing. And uh, he goes hand-to-hand with Satan in the wilderness, right? And so there are three temptations of the woman. There are three temptations of, of Jesus. And they match up with the three temptations in First John. And so the woman saw that the tree was pleasing to look at. That's going to be in First John, lust of the eyes. Um, and for Jesus, that is going to be uh, when the... Uh, when, when Satan takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms, lets him see all the kingdoms, and offers them to him without having to go to the cross. Uh, and so lust of the eyes is one of the temptations. Lust of the flesh is two. The, 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 the fruit of the tree was desirable uh, to eat. It's good for food. I'm sorry. Good for food. And, of course, the temptation for Jesus is to turn the stones into bread. That's the lust of the flesh. That's the second one, uh, depending on what which passage you're using for the order. Lust of the flesh, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, uh, and the pride of life. And this is the order that, what I'm following here, is the order that uh, the woman encountered them in the garden. And so the third thing is this boastful pride of life. So... For the woman, it was the desire to make her wise, to make her like God, an elevated status. For Jesus, it was the temptation to go up, for for Satan to take him up on the pinnacle of the temple and cast himself off and knowing that God would not let him die that way. And it was a way to show off and for everybody to recognize him uh, and the glory that was his. But of course, it was doing it in a way other than what God had uh, uh, given to him. And so all three of these things are, are important. This notion of a standard of evil, uh, good and evil, independent of God. Um, the notion of what it means to be like God. And this area of temptations are all three things that we can take back and uh, find at play in our lives as we try to live out our faith. Now there's one more thing that I want to mention here in terms of making sense of life. And it is this. That here in this point, when the serpent comes to the woman and the man is there, this was the first opportunity for the man to rule as God's representative. And remember, he was put here to subdue and rule over the creatures. And so now one of the creatures, the serpent, presents the challenge. And in that moment when the man was supposed to rule and subdue, 
He does not. He fails. And rather than ruling and subduing and leading, he watches as the woman follows the serpent and he follows her. And so God's purpose is never fulfilled in the man. Remember, God created the man to rule and subdue as his representative. And he doesn't do that. And so God's purpose for man is never realized. And through the rest of the story, um, we don't see that happening. We never see man live into what God created him for. And so this is going to be the question that hangs over the story. Is God's purpose to create man who will rule in his representative, rule as his representative? Does that ever happen? Or is God's purpose frustrated forever? And does God, in effect, fail in this very first thing that he intends to do here at the beginning of the story? And so that question is going to be, if you think about how story works, it is the tension, it is the challenge, it is the obstacles that must be overcome that make the story what it is. And I'm increasingly believing that this is the defining question of the story. Can man ever fulfill the purpose for which God created him? And so we're going to watch that as the story unfolds and as we come back next time and look at the consequences uh, of, of the man and woman's choice here, how that plays out. So I'm glad you're joining me for this journey. I hope you're finding it profitable. And I look forward to continuing this story next time on the Making Sense of Life podcast. Mm-hmm.